Thank you, Nell. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you pass those to the aisles, we would love to uh, collect those. We'll be praying for you this week. Romans 8, verse 1. At this stage in our study of the book of Romans, I've invited you to put on your mountain climbing gear as we uh, make our ascent to the summit of this a great chapter of Bible promises. We kind of surveyed the terrain last week in a survey of Romans 8, and we discovered in verse 1, no condemnation. That'll be our focus uh, this morning. No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul talks about life in the Spirit, which is probably the theme of Romans 8, how we live life in the Spirit, and He gives us power. He intercedes for us. He helps us in all aspects of the Christian life. We're adopted into God's forever family. We discover in verse 17, we are heirs with Christ and joint heirs with Him. That we have hope even though we live in a groaning, dying world where there are accidents and disease and setbacks and tragedies. And the creation groans and we feel that some days more than others. But we have hope in the midst of that, that God has a plan for His people. And one day, we are headed to a place where sin will reign no more or impact life anymore, any longer. And we shall know the, the smile and the favor of God forever and to live life as it was intended to be lived. We looked at the golden chain of salvation. Salvation wasn't birthed on the fly but we see was established from the foundation of the world. God decided to redeem a people and that redemption is seen fully in the, in the preaching of the gospel. And because God has not withheld his only son, he doesn't withhold anything from us as well. We can count on him. He is good, he is faithful, he is wise and nothing can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'm praying that this study of Scripture, this, the study of Romans chapter 8, would deepen us as a church and lead us to greater boldness and overflowing joy and boundless hope as we live for Jesus Christ in the days that God has given to us to be a faithful witness around the world as well as in this community. So verse 1 offers incredible news. Have you taken it in? Um, there is therefore now... No condemnation. And then it's qualified for those who are in Christ Jesus, not those who want to negotiate a deal saying, I want all your goodies, but I'm going to live this way. No, for those who have come to see their sin and that Christ is our only Savior and turn to Him in repentance and faith, no condemnation. It's lifted. The reason this is a great gift is because there is a very real condemnation, which the book of Romans has gone to great lengths and depths to communicate to us. Charles Spurgeon said that this verse, Romans 8.1, refutes the old serpent's gospel, which says that you do not need to trouble yourself, that there's a heaven to lose or a hell to be feared. The reason he says there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is because there is an ever-present danger of condemnation. In fact, we read in John's gospel that the wrath of God abides even now for those living in unbelief. 
And we have to allow the scripture to inform the way we see the world. Otherwise, we would say, no, he looks quite fine, actually. It couldn't be going better for her. Look at, look at, look at all the blessings in her life. But to be without Christ is to be a spiritual pauper with a condemnation over our heads. And so this statement, there is, now no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is a statement of freedom and release that in Christ God is for me and nothing can separate me from his love. So the nuts and bolts of this verse. Maybe you're thinking you're going to preach the whole sermon from one verse. I'm going to try. Amen. Therefore, for, let me mention a few words and phrases. Therefore, maybe you don't get fired up about conjunctions, but they're important in reading the Bible. And Romans has a number of substantial therefores. Let me just give you a quick look. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's building on everything that he's just said. How do I have um, sin's mastery over me uh, defeated? How do I come to know God's favor and grace? It's not by works of righteousness, which I've done, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then in chapter um, 12, chapter 12, as Paul goes into the the practical living out of the Christian life in chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Therefore is an important word when you read your Bible. It's pointing back to all that he's been arguing for, all that he's been calling us to believe and to receive. Next word, now. A time word, the result of believers entering into justification, and we've defined justification in this way, where we are declared legally righteous in the courtroom of heaven by faith in Christ. That's, that's in real time now. That's not something we're looking forward to in the future. That's a, a real-time reception of the gift of eternal life. The next word is no. What can you get out of a no? Well, in the English translation, it doesn't capture the weight of what Paul is saying here. Um, it's, it's more than a simple negative. It's not like, no, I don't want any ice cream. That's a rare thing. But no, I don't want any ice cream. Uh, no, I don't want green, pe- green peas. That's almost without exception. <laughs> We're not talking about simple, no, uh, uh, yes or no issues. Here he's talking about um, a strong emphasis. It occurs, this no, it, it begins at, at the start of the verse and strengthens its force. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he can never be, it's impossible. As the message of Christ is presented to you, you, you own the diagnosis of your spiritual state. You acknowledge, God, I am a sinner I've broken your laws, but look what you have done for me through your son. And I turn to you. I receive him as my rightful Lord and Savior and the forgiveness of sins that he gives. And then the next word would be condemnation. 
we don't feel the weight of what it means to be condemned because many of us never have really heard the words of a judge or a jury say of you, you're guilty. Maybe some have in this room. We know that goes on all the time. But if you haven't, maybe it's hard to connect with the sense of I'm under condemnation apart from Christ. Therefore, we can be lulled into thinking I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anyone. Haven't robbed a bank. Haven't burglarized a house. Haven't committed a violent crime. I heard of one family that were boasting, I'm so glad we don't have any bank robbers in our family. Within a year, one of them was arrested for bank robbery. Be careful what you brag about. There's no family tree that doesn't need a savior. And that includes every limb and every branch on the tree. So our journey through Romans 1 through 3 is presented for you and I to see that what may be true in the human realm before the bar of God, it's just not true. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so, you know, we live in this world where condemnation can come um, easily, can it? But to hear there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, regardless of what I'm suffering right now physically, God is not against me. I'm not condemned because of my health challenges. Um, I'm not condemned because of, of marital difficulties. God doesn't assess me on the state of my marriage. He assesses me on my relationship with Him. No condemnation for failed parenting. I don't, parenting's the hardest job in the world I would contend for. And it breeds in a lot of guilt that comes from one source or another. I should have done this, regrets. There's no condemnation with God because of failed parenting. No condemnation for failed efforts or failed ventures. And one of the challenges is you have some success, a wind of success blows in your life, and you and I can be tempted to think, look what I did. I need to, I need to brag about my accomplishments. But then we all deal with failure in one source or another. And God, we're not condemned because of our failures. Failed courage, no condemnation for failed courage. All of these things should produce within us, Lord, move in my life that these things would be redeemed for your purposes. But we're always aware of how we fall short and not to own condemnation that God never intended us to own, but to find refuge, and this would be the last phrase of the verse, in Christ. Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him, 164 plus times in his letters, this union with Christ, that in Christ I'm not condemned. God sees the righteousness of Christ in my life. Is that a boring message to you? I pray not. I pray that this would be at the core of how you understand your relationship with God, that I'm not condemned in him. I never need to fear that in him. So why is this message so difficult to receive. Let me give you a, a few reasons why I think that's, that's true. That this is hard to receive. 
as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. You ready? The first would be, we have a past. And sometimes it drags stubbornly. Paul describes our past. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the passions of your flesh. We have a past. The good news of the gospel means past sins are paid for for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. For some, dealing with past failures just seems insurmountable. And so I think one of the reasons why this simple statement that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is difficult to receive. Well, you don't understand, I got this past and I still deal with issues in my heart. Well, what I would say to that is you need to understand that God's perfect love casts out fear. In 1 John 4, 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And some relate with God, with God that way. He's going to punish me. He's going to hold this over my head the rest of my life. No, all he asks you to do this morning is to own it, repent of it, and go and sin no more. Resting in the claims of Jesus Christ. But somehow you have a hard time reconciling the pain of your past with the, with the incredible offer of this grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I would mention him again, he, he writes this, this comment on that verse in 1 John 4. You know, he's talking about abiding in God's love, remaining in God's love, that there's no fear in love and that perfect love casts out fear. So when you're abiding in God's love, some, some things happen and they're substantial. He asked a number of questions. Is there a loss of the sense that God's against you? Maybe you're dealing with something in your past. I, I, I'm in the penalty box for life. You'll, you won't find any counterpart to support that way of viewing the world or your life. There's new beginnings. Is there a loss of petrifying fear an increase of godly fear. We should have a reverence for God. We should never treat cavalierly sin. We should honor his word. In fact, Isaiah 66 says we should tremble at his word. But there's a, there's a fear that is petrifying and without redemption. Do I sense the love of God for me? Do I, I know that my sins are forgiven? Do I have a sense of gratitude to God? I was thinking about this, you know, one of the pains that most of us deal with are sins from our youth. Done in ignorance, done willfully. What would I say to somebody who knew me 40 years ago? I knew when you did this and this and this. And this, I know them well and a thousand more, but my Savior remembers none of them against me. Right? Not to be held in bondage. So, some do not receive this because, you know, we have a past. And it doesn't seem like they're able to get beyond it. I pray God would sever the cord of that 
sever it in your life today and say, Lord, you have, <laughs> if anyone is in Christ, he's a new person. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Amen. Secondly, we have a conscience. We have a conscience. Uh, years ago, I was gripped when I read this. Forty years ago, um, an airline jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studied the accident made, and they made a, a, an astonishing discovery. The black box cockpit recorder revealed that several minutes before um, impact, a shrill computer uh, synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew, crew, pull up, pull up. And the captain said, oh, just shut up and hit the button and deactivated it. Moments later, they plowed into the side of a mountain and everybody on board was killed. And, you know, when we think about that black box, um, the warning system, uh, our conscience is like that warning system. God has given human beings a conscience. We're not saved by our conscience, but he has put within us a sense of justice, a sense of knowing right and wrong. And what happens when you live in a sinful world for very long and you begin to compromise here and yield there, our consciences are affected by that. And then you have situations where aberrant behavior is to such a degree there's no conscience at all. It's been so seared. All they know is to do evil continually. But God has given us a conscience. The word conscience is combined a combination of two words, to know and together. So the Greek word picks that up, a co-knowledge. Conscience is knowledge together with oneself. Your conscience is a God-given faculty which knows our inner motives and true thoughts. And the way that plays out with receiving that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is we have a conscience that is troubled. It is troubled. The scripture mentions several types of consciences, an evil conscience in Hebrews 10.22. Let, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. How our sense of justice is marred by sin and what we've experienced in this world. The second would be a seared conscience. Paul mentions that in 1 Timothy 4 verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, where they don't know how to say no anymore. He mentions a defiled conscience in Titus 1.15, a scrambled uh, conscience that celebrates evil and is cynical. He mentions a weak conscience in 1 Corinthians 8 that is just so sensitive to things that is not able to function properly and really wants to legalize everything. And so we need to realize that our conscience must be trained by what? Let's quote Martin Luther here. My conscience is trained by the word of God. It must be trained by the word of God because all of us have things that drag in our life and need to be dealt with. And so maybe you have a troubled conscience. A, 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 you're aware that your conscience is troubled and stirred up and you can't possibly receive um, the promises of Christ Jesus because maybe you don't think he would ever receive you or that your sins are too great to be 
welcomed and, and, and paid for by his grace. Paul, I'm sure, had a troubled conscience on a number of fronts. He was a, a violent aggressor. He was um, he, uh, arrested and persecuted innocent people. But he says several times in his ministry, Acts 23.1, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I think he's speaking of the change that took place on the Damascus Road at his conversion. In 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. And the reason I, I feel guilt when I do wrong is because I am. That's what you want. We live in a culture that says, don't feel guilty. If, you, if you're dealing with guilt, go see a therapist and they'll walk you through how to put that off. But I think to rightly understand guilt in the Bible is that should drive me to the cross. That should drive me to promises like Romans 8.1. That in my guilt I can bring to a merciful Savior who will forgive me. There's a third reason why... Um, I think many push back on receiving this incredible promise, and that is we have a present. <laughs> we have a past, we have a conscience, and we have a present, and that present which includes this past week. And I mention from time to time, oh, pastor, if you knew what I did this week, you, you know, you guys wouldn't let me in the building. I understand those thoughts. I understand struggles. Even some who hear the incredible declaration of Romans 8 verse 1 seem unable to receive it. Here's a, here's a really a deep struggle that I read years ago by this man. Some years ago, I read the anguish of a professing believer whose struggle um, with, his, with his flesh was intense. He attended church faithfully but struggled with seeming powerlessness against temptation, which arose in his heart. This vicious cycle bred doubts and led him to the conclusion that he could not possibly be a Christian. All the paperwork aside, so many times he determined in his heart to repent, to shake loose his desire to sin, to forbid, or to forsake rather all for Jesus, only to find himself doing the sin he did not want to do and not doing the good he wanted to do. Sounds like Romans 7, doesn't it? After he and his fiance broke up, he memorized the book of Ephesians as part of an all-out effort against sin, only to find himself weaker and more painful, painfully aware of his sinfulness, more prone to sin than ever before, and grabbing cheap thrills to push back the pain of lost love. In despair, he compared himself to a soldier without armor, running across the battlefield, getting shot up by the fiery darts from the enemy. I couldn't leave the church if I wanted to, he said. I love the people, and I'm enthralled by the gospel of the beauty, beautiful Messiah, but I'm a pile of manure on the white marble floor of Christ. A mongrel dog that sneaked in the back door of the king's banquet to lick the crumbs off the floor. And by being close to Christians who are rich in the blessings of Christ, I get some of the overflow and ask you to pray for me as you think best. We have a present. How are we going to appropriate these promises of grace to us? I pray in simple faith. 
I've got to believe what God has said over against how I feel and how I evaluate myself. Our guilty status, we were condemned subject to the outpouring of God's wrath, but Christ came and died for us bearing God's wrath in our place. And there is now no condemnation. All the law could do is condemn us. But what the law could not do, God did for us. And we need to live with an awareness that God sees everything. He sees our heart. He sees our thoughts. In fact, Psalm 139 speaks of the omnipresence of God. Where can I go from you? If I go to the remotest parts of the earth, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. That God is omniscient. He knows my thoughts and my words even before I speak them, the psalmist says. He's all-powerful. So let's just be honest. There's no such thing as secret sin. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Isn't that what the Lord's Supper is all about? A regular reminder that we're to examine ourselves, to see that we're in the faith, to examine our hearts and confess our sins, to be reminded of this truth that in Christ who gave his body and blood, I'll never be condemned. Listen to the words of this honest brother. One of the lies of sin is that it only affects you. So when we come to the Lord's table, we're coming as a body. So one of the lies of sin is that it only affects you. Think of it. If you give in to pornography on a Saturday night, the likelihood of being really tempted in the morning to pull the covers over your head and just sleep through church because of the guilt and the shame that is associated with it is very high. And if you don't show up at church... We miss you. We need you. You are part of the body. We are family in Christ. Or if you do come to church after yielding to sin in that way, or anything similar to it, often this brother says, I can remember viewing pornography on Saturday night and coming to church on Sunday morning and just being sapped. I'm not as prone to greet my neighbor as I'm commanded. Not, not as prone to reach out to the one next to me. I'm not as likely to uh, sing robustly. And boy, there was some singing uh, this morning. I'm not as prone to sing robustly or encourage the person next to me. I'm not going to be as ready to hear the word of God and apply it to my life. So, I need to remember, because I live in the present, there is, there's nothing I'm going to do this week that's going to put me under condemnation, and I need to freely confess it to my Savior. Remember the woman taken in adultery in John 8? She was taken from adultery, filled with hypocrisy, filled with shame, and she was thrown at the feet of Jesus And then they quote scripture like they're, you know, righteous. Moses said we should stone her. 
He who is without sin cast the first stone. You could just hear the thud of the stone hit the ground. As conviction came. And they saw their hypocrisy. They left and Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? I have none, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Back to what you were doing. It's okay. Go and sin no more. Finally, actually we have two more. We have an enemy. The reason there's hesitancy to receive this great promise of no condemnation, we have an enemy, a relentless enemy. The Bible defines this trifecta, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're not to love the world because the world system is driven by these forces. The world system that's at odds with God, a devil who actively promotes that agenda in our own sinful flesh. We have a relentless enemy. We need to be properly taught on um, the attacks of Satan. We're commanded in James 4 verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Temptation comes, we're running to Christ. Failure comes, we're running to Christ. There's hope in no other. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. How do I resist him? By being faithful and obedient to Jesus Christ. Being where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing. So life is a spiritual battle. We have a roaring lion of an enemy. And sometimes he attacks as a friend. He comes to Eve, tempts her. Adam buys it too. He comes as someone, he's, he's got winsome words. Seems reasonable. He seems to have our best interest at heart, only to lose everything. He attacks as an angel of light. Oh, how Satan loves to bring enlightenment. He appears as an angel of light. May look squeaky clean, but if it's not anchored in truth, it's not anchored in Christ, it will deceive. And then finally, in all of these things, our past, our conscience, our present, our enemy, all seem to be hesitant, bring hesitation from receiving this promise of no condemnation. I want you to note, lastly, even still, we have a Savior who's mighty to save. We have a Savior who's mighty to save. Christ's blood is able to save any sinner. John Bunyan gives an alphabetized list, adulterers, blasphemers, cowards, Deceivers, doubters, drunks, gluttons, gossips, hypocrites, idolaters, liars, moralists, murderers, perverts, racists, slanderers, thieves. He has the power to save, to go and sin no more, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become. The message of the Bible is you come to Christ. And he will save you. He will forgive you. He will give you new beginnings. 
Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name. The age, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Sometimes we struggle to believe and embrace the very basic biblical truth that in Jesus Christ, God loves he loves big. He demonstrated that love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a statement that God would die this way, which communicates what? Whoever, whosoever will, he will in no way cast out. Why don't you run to him now? Believer, why don't you think of what the bread and the cup symbolize? as we complement it together with this word that there's no condemnation in him. Jared's going to come to lead us in the Lord's Supper this morning. May this be a time of confession. I'm praying God would set free this morning. I don't know what you have carrying, what you're carrying in your heart, what you have on your mind, but that you would be set free, that you have a Savior who loves you and in no way condemns you. In fact, he was condemnation for you through his death on the cross. May we worship him now as we come to the Lord's table.